Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. My wife and I over the past few months have been endeavouring to try something new in our diet, and we've been trying to go dairy-free. I don't know if anyone's tried that before. Um, It's a bit difficult, so we committed. We're like, we're going to do it. No dairy. Let's cut it out. Dairy, a dairy-free diet. So we tried a few different things. We tried the almond milk. Um, it, we didn't like the aftertaste very much. Tried coconut milk. Didn't, didn't like the taste very much. So we've settled on soy milk, okay? Any soy milk drinkers here? Any soy caramel latte? So um, we've, gone, we've gone with soy milk. Now, um, at, at the initial, you know, there's a little bit of a novelty at the beginning. You're like, oh, it's an acquired taste. The problem is with anything that's an acquired taste, you don't know how long the acquisition period is going to take, right? So um, for me, I've given up a lot, lot sooner. So slowly the full cream's been entering back in the fridge. Chloe has been holding out strong, mind you. Don't worry, I haven't been putting in any of your coffees or anything. The problem is with determining to go dairy-free, and we didn't anticipate this when we began, is that dairy is everywhere. And we couldn't believe how much dairy is in our diet. Like not only our you know, coffees, obviously we have our coffees and our teas, but then all of our snacks and our sweets and our main meals, just coffee is... Coffee, coffee's everywhere. Coffee needs to be everywhere right now, but um, dairy's everywhere. And so it makes it, we didn't realize how much dairy was part of our diet and part of our life. And as much as we try to avoid it, dairy is absolutely everywhere. And maybe in this series, in a similar tone, we've been talking about you know, living guilt-free and knowing what to do with our guilt and you know, how to handle guilt properly and what to make sure that guilt doesn't lead and you know, the proper handling of guilt. We can determine that finally I'm, I'm guilt-free. Guilt is not going to lead my life. I'm going to leverage it right, but it's not going to lead me. You might determine I'm going to live guilt-free, but there is a problem. Guilt is everywhere. And as much as you can determine that you're going to not let it dominate you or rule you or have the final say in your life or at least dictate the tone of your life, it's hard to avoid. And this isn't even a Christian thing. And you might be someone here who is their first time in church. Perhaps you're watching online and it's the safe way for you to engage in a faith conversation and you're not sure about this. You don't have to be, believe in God to understand. You can encounter guilt in environments everywhere. And our society does a brilliant way. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks of guilting us into conforming, into fitting a mold. We all do it, right? People go, oh, you're a man, therefore, you know, you've got to, and if you don't, and what do you mean you're a man, you don't know how to put together Ikea furniture? You call yourself a man? You know, I've never heard that before, but um, maybe you go, or a woman, oh, you know, and you're a lady, you got to, or, you know, this is how all husbands or all wives have to be, and whatever it might be, you know, and our society is a great Job or our culture does a great job of trying to guilt us um, into a form. Oh, yeah. So if you, these ones, right? If you really cared, then you would. Man, I'm going for Canberra Raiders right now, and people have been like guilting me into like, you're getting on the bandwagon. I'm like, yeah, I am, you know, guilt free. I'm on the bandwagon. It's fun. It's better than being on the wooden spoon train heading nowhere. Anyways, so. I digress. Um, so our culture did a great job of trying to guilt us. Here's, here's what blows my mind about this whole idea of guilt was everywhere. It's been everywhere always. Even Jesus encountered this, this whole tension to, to fit a form or fit a mold and people would guilt him. You know, the Son of God, can you imagine that? You know, this is how I envision my, my Savior. This is how I envision God should look like in a body. 
Have you ever thought what Jesus did look like? You know, maybe if, I know Chloe was really disappointed when she read that passage in Isaiah that says there was nothing about him that was attractive. Chloe's like, I've always pictured Jesus being attractive. I'm like, well, Jesus gave you the second best thing. He gave you me. And so I've actually never said that really. It's just preacher's license. Um, she said that. So uh, pray for her. Um, so, so we even read that um, at the start of, um, right before Jesus preached any message or any sermon, he got water baptized himself and it said the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness and there he had a showdown with the devil himself. And the devil full on tries to guilt Satan into fitting this form. He's like, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really what we're to expect as God in a body, then you will do this and you will act like that and, this is, and you should be able to do these great. And so he was already trying to go, if you really are, then you have to look like this. Now, before you go and think, yeah, that's what the devil always does. The devil guilts me and this is a devil thing. Well, before you get ahead of yourself, okay, Jesus experienced it even from the most godly people on the planet. He experienced it from his own cousin, John the Baptist. And as the story goes, John, who preceded Jesus and prepared the people for the coming of the Messiah by saying, hey, repent of your sins, get right before Jesus arrives. And Jesus arrives. He's like, finally, Jesus is going to be here to sort everyone out. And what does Jesus start doing? He starts turning water into wine. He starts rocking up to parties. He starts having dinner parties with tax collectors. He starts showing compassion to sinners. He starts including the the ostracized. And John's like, hang on a second. This isn't what I said people you would be like. Here I am giving this hard word. I'm waiting for you to like bring the hammer, but yet you're bringing hugs. It's like, I don't know what's up with that. So the story goes, you read about it in the Gospels that John sent two of his disciples to Jesus. And they were like, hey, so, uh, and this is how literally the line goes. It goes, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or are we supposed to look for someone else? Fully trying to guilt Jesus into, right? To buying into their, fitting their mold or fitting their idea of what a saviour should look like. But it's amazing, no matter how much they tried to guilt him into a certain set of behaviours or even a certain form or identity, Jesus was able to always be himself. Always. Never played to the crowd, never tried to perform for people. In fact, if any time people tried to assert their idea in Jesus, he would withdraw into privacy. Yet Jesus was so certain of who he was. And where did that come from? Well, just prior to Jesus beginning his ministry, as he was water baptized, he came out of the water. And as the Gospels explain, we can read about it in the Gospel of Matthew here, a voice was heard. And it said this over Jesus, and Matthew records it. said, this is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. So his heavenly father, for all to hear, affirms Jesus in view of John the Baptist, in view of all those who were standing there by the Jordan River 2,000 years ago, said, this is my son whom I love, and I am well pleased with him. Now, if you think about it, up until this point, Jesus really hadn't done much. He hadn't preached any sermon. He hadn't healed any people, performed any miracles. But yet his heavenly Father said, I'm pleased in you. And this is super liberating for you and I to get our head around, is that God is pleased in you, irrespective of what you've done or haven't yet done. He's pleased with you because He loves you. As you are, as Mark mentioned earlier, with all your quirks, with your sense of humour, with your personality. 
And when Jesus heard this affirmation from his heavenly father, I'm just pleasing you. I love you. You're my son. No wonder he was able to confidently stand in front of people as they would try and, uh, I guess, push their ideas or push their image of what he should be like, whether they tried to guilt him into it or not. He was able to confidently just be himself. So let me ask you this question. When you hear the term, be yourself, what do you think of? What comes to mind when someone says the term or says to you, be yourself? Or rather, what version of yourself comes to mind when you hear this term, be yourself? It confused me for an awful lot of years, this idea to be yourself. And I think it's normal in our maturity and as we grow in life, as we figure out you know, boundaries, we figure out how society works, we figure out how we work, and you try and, you know, like having a, you know, a almost four-year-old, I see how she's learning about herself and learning about society. She engages in school and community. So it's, it's normal part of a human development. But what comes to mind when you think of the term be yourself? Now, unbeknownst to you, I've been doing a little social experiment on you for the past few months. And you wouldn't, most of you wouldn't know it. And if some of you be like, oh, that's why you asked me that. But I've been asking people whenever I remember, when you think in your mind how old you are, how old do you think you are? Like you might look in the mirror and be a certain age, but this is the question I'm asking. How old do you think you are? Like in your mind, when you think of yourself and almost universally, everyone says somewhere in their 20s. Now, by show of hands, if I was to ask you that personally, who would agree with that, that you still think that you're somewhere in your 20s? Okay, only a few of you. Okay, well, okay, more hands. There you go. Thank you guys. You're awesome. So do I, right? I still think I'm like 23, wearing dickies, and a choker chain, and a nolsey, and I had a brief six-month period where I had like spikes on a wristband, and we didn't have to get into all of that, but, um, and when I got my tattoo choking, I didn't, did I, Chloe? No, I didn't. So, so, but what's interesting to me is rarely people go, yeah, 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 in my head, I'm the age I am. Now, there's a million conclusions that we can draw about that, right? But needless to say, somewhere along the line, when we think about ourselves, we have an idea of ourselves that we lean into, maybe a preferred idea, or at least in some parts of our life, you and I, and I don't say this negatively, I just say it as a thing, we, we stopped. We, what term is stuck, that can obviously have negative connotations, but I don't know if some of you, you still be wearing the same fashion you wore in your 20s and you're in your 30s, and that needs to stop, you know. <laughs> stop pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just saw, these, I saw a collage on YouTube yesterday of all these preachers getting up, these young preachers for wearing tight jeans. I'm like, oh, that's me. I felt so guilted. Anyway, um, so, but some of you are still listening to, to the same music. Anyway, so that's not a big deal, right? We, but there is this, there is a part of us that gets stuck. Now, where the, the negative trap of this, though, is when we've allowed perhaps imposed guilt to lead our life in such a way that instead of continuing to grow and mature and develop and move forward, somewhere along the line, you got stuck as a person and you stopped growing. And this fascinates me, the idea of human growth and human progress and human development, like as, as individuals, as people, it fascinates me because we clearly recognize it in children and in adolescents. But at what point do we decide to pull up stumps and go, that's it for me? I'm done. And the, the danger with that is sometimes we've decided that based on the back of where we've encountered guilt. 
And maybe you've encountered self-imposed guilt. You've entered a career, you've moved to a community, you've been part of a family, and it's like, this is how we do things. And you're like, well, I guess this is how things are done. And then you've just, that's how things are done now for your life. And so self-imposed guilt, if not handled, it's not self-imposed, I should say imposed guilt, if not handled correctly, can lead to our lives experiencing what I call gridlock. Do you guys know what gridlock is? For those who are visual people, gridlock. Doesn't it just give you the heebie-jeebies, right? Um, but for some of us, this is, well, for all of us, we can be in danger of our life being like this, where we've stopped and we're in the middle of a crowd and this is how we all do it. We don't move. We don't grow. This is us. Or this is my life. Or this is my way. And, and if you're like, well, why? And I go, well, that's what people this is how they said it was supposed to be. This is what's expected of me. This is what my family has said. Or this is what my wife expected. And I've, I've stopped. And I'm now, and you're now in gridlock, stuck into other people's expectations, into performing or into fitting a mold. Maybe you've been stuck in someone else's view of what you're supposed to be like as a wife or as a husband. Or maybe someone else's idea of what a good mother looks like. Or, well, I better, I better be like that. Or a good father, I better be. And so you're gridlocked now. And you're stuck in a mold and someone else has guilted you into it or like you're supposed to have have this kind of career and do these kinds of hours or this is supposed to be what your body should look like. The list can go on and on and on. This imposed guilt. Again, remember guilt is everywhere. And to add another layer to it, many of us at times can be stuck in maybe a past event, a past hurt, a past offence. And if not handled correctly the events that come to us, particularly when there's a layer of guilt added to them, which we all experience in varying degrees. Guilt and imposed guilt can cause you and I to experience gridlock. But what we see in Jesus, and this is super liberating, and it's where I want to finish our series today, is that you don't have to spend your life and spend your growth guilted into gridlock. Jesus showed us another way, that God doesn't view your life, God doesn't view my life or our life, as stuck, as immobile, as concrete, or in a fixed state. Your heavenly Father sees you and I as moldable, as shapeable, as growable, as changeable. I'm just using many adjectives and adding the word able at the end of it. And in light of that, in light of that, guilt has a God-given purpose. And it's not to lead you your life into gridlock, but guilt handled correctly operates like guardrails. You know guardrails? We drive past them every day. You don't take notice of, can we go to the next picture? We don't take notice of guardrails. You don't drive along and go, look at that nice guardrail. The only time we usually notice the guardrail is when? You got it. Someone smashed into it. Like, oh, someone had a bad night, you know? So whatever it might be. So, and this is the thing. This is guilt properly leveraged. You don't notice it. You don't walk around trying to avoid guilt your whole life. You know it when you run into it though. Or you notice it when someone else runs into it. So, but guilt handled correctly and what we've been trying to get across in this series is that it can operate like a guardrail. It's like that little nudge that says, hey, well, stay back here. Stay, you know, warning, <laughs> caution. Kind of like, remember we said at the start, like a pain receptor. It's like pains, they're going, whoa, whoa, if you keep doing that, it might cause injury. And so understanding guardrails, I mean, guardrails is the most boring thing, right? You don't think about guardrails. You unless you're an engineer here and you love a good guardrail and you're like, that's a nice view. I know, that, but sorry, my father-in-law is giving me the look. I love it. Actually, that's a nice guy. Actually, no, I think about it. It's got curves. And anyway, so, so here's though the purpose of guardrails from a pastor's perspective. 
Um, they're not there to stop you and I from progressing. Good luck stop you from progressing. Guardrails aren't there to stop you from progressing. Guardrails exist to ensure that you do progress safely. Okay? They exist to help you get to your destination, hopefully event-free, to stop you hurting yourself, hurting others. And so if you view the feelings of guilt that we can encounter, it's like guardrails. It's like I took my daughter Willa to Time Zone a few weeks ago. We went on a, a date at night. It was really cute, and, but she, was, she would seem bored. So I've got to spice this up. So I took her to Time Zone. We went in the Dodgem cars. Oh, my word. Everyone else driving didn't know what they're doing. I'm like, I want to line these people up. And so for five minutes, none of these people knew how to drive. And so, or it was the other one that didn't know how to drive. Anyway, needless to say, we kept, and she thought it was hilarious. Anyway, the guardrails were useless there because you wanted to run into them. But in this case, guardrails exist to ensure that you and I, or guilt is in place to ensure that you and I can keep growing and progressing in life, that we wouldn't be in a fixed, gridlocked state, but that you and I would continue to grow in life, that we continue to mature in life, that our faith would deepen in life, that as a husband, as a wife, as a man, as a woman, whatever age you are, that we would continue to grow, that you wouldn't be one of those people that decide, this is me and I am gridlocked and I ain't changing. And your spouse is saying, you were saying that 10 years ago, please, 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 we've got kids now, you know, (laughs) or whatever it might be. So progress, progress, that we would continue to progress. Now, progress it's an interesting thing. And again, if you're not a believer here, if you're a believer in God, you, we all have these ideas of what it means to progress and how, how we do progress. And our society seems unbelievably obsessed with this idea of, of progress. You know, prog- we're progressive. We're going to keep progressing as if progress is a virtue in and of itself. But I remember recently I was reading an article about um, the, uh, where the original kind of like... Um, protests against logging came from in Australia because once upon a time we're like, yeah, in the name of progress, we're going to flatten forests so we can build new roads and towns in the name of progress. And everyone's like, yes, progress. And then, you know, a few decades later, we're like, actually, that wasn't always an awesome idea. So like, just because progress didn't necessarily mean is a good thing. And so, so progress isn't a virtue in and of itself. In fact, sometimes to understand what it is to move forward, you've got to learn from the past. I think if we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, we're doomed to repeat them. Um, so for lack of a good quote, I always turn to one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. And one of the things he wrote has challenged me for years and years and years, and it's about progress. And he said this, pro, and this was written back in the 50s. Progress means getting nearer to the place that you want to be. Fair, fair point? And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, here's the point. Progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. Do you follow? So the idea of just moving forward at all costs, maybe, maybe that's not the point. Progress means getting closer or getting nearer to the place you desire or it's healthy or, or good to be. And so he uses this, and this is why I just, I shake my head sometimes when progress is used as an argument when talking about huge sociological issues that need to be debated and you know, wrung out. One of my personal takes is we shouldn't remove a fence until we know why it was put there in the first place. And any person that's ever taken on a property or a farm knows that to be the case, right? Find out why this fence was put there or why they're retaining it. You get the idea. So, so but C.S. Lewis rightly decides, or explains to us here that sometimes progress means to stop and to turn around. 
and that the man who does it soonest is actually the most progressive. Now, this idea of turning around, remember there's been a theme in this series. The idea of turn around is a biblical word for it, and that word is repentance. Repentance. And this can often be misconstrued with, or at least have a one-dimensional view that it's at like, oh, you know, woe is me, I've done wrong, sackcloth and ashes. That's not an actual literal translation of the word. If you look in any Greek translation of where we see this word in the New Testament, it means to do an about turn, to turn around, right? Similar to that idea of progress can mean if I'm not going anywhere near it to where I'm supposed to be, I'm going to turn around. It's this idea of repentance. Now, if you recall, if you've been involved in this series over the past few weeks, we've had a memory verse. And the memory verse is from the New Testament book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul writes to them. Can we go to the next slide? And he talks about what God did or what God leveraged to lead you and I to repentance, which would mean life change, which means to turn around. Now, we've looked at this idea. We could fill that gap there with a million words. And many of you have before. And if you've been someone who is, maybe hasn't engaged with faith or church for a long time, maybe it's because if you were to fill that word there, maybe it's the word that you incorrectly put there. We can often look at, well, it's God's, it's God's anger. God's angry at us. And that's how He wants us to turn around and to have life change and repent. Or it's God's holiness. God's holiness is intended to lead us to repentance. Or it's God's wrath, whatever it might be. This is not what we see in the New Testament. As we read... And as we've remembered all together, it's God's, ah, oh, I didn't even have to put it up. You guys are awesome. God's kindness is intended. We can go to, we can go to, we can fill that blank. We can fill the blank and the blank is filled. God, you're awesome, Will. Oh, it wasn't Will. Ah, oh, who am I looking at? Chris, sorry, mate. Good job, Chris. God's kindness. God's kindness. It's God's kindness. He doesn't guilt us into life change. He loves us into it. Have you ever loved someone so much, you've been like, I'll change for you, or I'll, I'll stop that for you, or I'll take that up for you? God loved you and I so much. He said, I love you guys. I'm going to give my own life for you. And the Apostle Paul encountered that, and he concluded God's kindness towards us. God's kindness. Now, when you think about the Apostle Paul's story, and if you're not familiar with him, he was in the decades, a couple of decades following the resurrection of Jesus. And as the Christians started, you know, multiplying and growing and moving around Israel at the time, the Apostle Paul was a, what was known as a Pharisee, who were kind of religious ruling class of Israel and a heavy religious society. It was a big deal. And he was at the top of his class. And he was so passionate what he saw as serving God that he would find whatever Christians he could because they thought they were blasphemous, that they were heretics, they're ruining the pure Jewish faith. And so he would uh, enter into Christians' homes, drag off men and women in front of their families, throw them into jail, commit them to prison, and in many cases, consented to their death. And in fact, in the book of Acts, we read that Paul, who was originally named Saul before he met Jesus, was there for the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. Paul was there as they threw stones at Stephen for his faith, and he died. So this guy was bad news to Christians. Now, as far as he was concerned, he was super committed to God. He was doing God a favor. Yet here he was killing the people that God died for, right? So, so he encounters Jesus, turns his life around. And God then takes who was Saul, renames him Paul, and uses 
Paul's life for incredible good. And Paul concludes his life change that it was God's kindness that caused his life to change. He didn't encounter God's wrath. He didn't encounter God's guilt. He didn't encounter God's anger. He encountered God's kindness. And what he realizes is that God didn't define Paul. And we read this, God did not define Paul by his guilt. And when he grabbed Paul, he affirmed on his life his calling. He affirmed his gifting. He affirmed his experience. He affirmed his upbringing. God didn't define Paul based on where he was guilty. He didn't go, well, you're a Christian killer and I'm going to make you pay back for that, Paul. Right? God didn't define or see him, Paul, as a fixed position, like gridlocked Paul. And I'm going to forever guilt you because of what you have done wrong. And I'm going to define you by your guilt. And the problem is we often do that to ourselves. But where do we learn that from? We feel guilty for something and we've done something wrong and, and then we let that define our lives? Well, your heavenly father didn't tell you to do that. And we certainly don't see that in Jesus and we don't see that in Paul and his life. God refused to define him by his guilt. But here's the amazing thing. God took, and this is remarkable, God took Paul, was an experienced teacher and student of Scripture, was an experienced orator, was a passionate follower of God, was just passionate in general, understood leadership, understood culture, was, you know, he could speak multiple languages. The guy was a hustler. And so God, instead of defining him by his guilt, said, I could use that. And so what did God do? He found Paul, turned his life around, right? That repentance thing. He encountered God's kindness. His life turned around. And so instead of defining Paul by his guilt, God refined him. He took this hateful, angry, twisted, wasn't all incorrect because there's some parts there. He's like, God, I can work with this. So God began to like cut off the rough bits. and like, Paul, I can use you. I need someone who can hustle. I need someone who can handle Scriptures correctly. I need someone who's fearless. I need someone who's going to take what you did that led to many people dying. And I want you to use that, turn around and lead to many people truly living. And God began the process of refining the raw ingredients that Paul had. And you have to understand this about how God works. God will not define you by where you're guilty, right? The whole gridlock thing. You will operate like a guardrails that will lead you to progress, to keep growing. And that's a process what we know in Scripture as a refining process. And your Heavenly Father is committed to you and I, to our growth, to our change, and He will grab you as you are, being yourself, but He'll begin the process of refining our lives. I look at even how this happened in my life. Um, you, I kept a whole lot of my report cards not all of them, because eventually I realized from school, all my report cards said the same things from kindergarten to year 12. Literally the same thing. Said so Jonathan's like, you know, lovely and he's enthusiastic in class and loves to get involved. However, Jonathan tends to talk far too much. He needs to learn to listen a little more if he can learn to every single report card. I know some of my teachers are here and you're probably guilty of writing that about me. Little did you know you were prophetic, right? Here's my point. I had, a, I had a big mouth, no doubt about it. I would get myself into trouble, not because I was a bad kid, just because I had loose lips. Or I didn't have a bad heart, just had an uncontrollable tongue. So I still remember like, man, take your pick. You know, going all the hundreds of, I still remember one time and I can't tell you the reason, I must've been eight or nine. 
And I was at church one night and I went to one of my sister's best friends and I told her, my sister doesn't like you anymore. She's not your friend. And she's like, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, she told me. She's not your friend. I don't know why I did it. I just did it. And I told her this and then I went on about my merry self. I get home that night and my dad drills me. He's like, what have you done? I'm like, what? He goes, your sister is now fighting with her best friend. It wasn't me. What did you tell her? They weren't friends. I guess it was me or whatever it was. That's just one example. My big mouth would get me. Now, here's the thing. I had all the raw ingredients. I had all the raw ingredients. I needed a bit of refining though. A lot of refining actually. But this is how God works. He sees you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. As you are, right? Your, Your uniqueness, your sense of humor. Come on, hear me. Your personality, the way you view the world. The world needs you. Stop trying to fit a form that someone else is putting on your life or guilting you into. You are exactly who you're supposed to be. But there's always a process of refinement. And your Heavenly Father is committed to you and I having those rough edges loved off our life, of encountering His kindness and smoothing areas that are bumpy and encountering guardrails that are there to go, whoa, don't go there. You might get hurt. Let's keep growing and progressing in life, right? So, and it's worth knowing, okay, every time you and I make a mistake and something perhaps we feel guilty for, whether it's something we've said or something we did or perhaps even something we've omitted or failed to do, those moments in our life are super important and it's super important that we handle guilt correctly in those moments because our identity, learning who we are in a Heavenly Father's eyes, is refined through those moments. And as much as we love a compliment, as much as we love someone congratulating us for how we are, it's difficult to receive criticism. And it's difficult to look in the mirror when we've made a mistake. But I'm telling you, your Heavenly Father in those moments doesn't want to guilt you into gridlock in those moments. Your Heavenly Father wants to shower you with kindness in those moments. Because in those moments where you encounter your faults and your mistakes, they're the moments where your Heavenly Father loves to refine us and goes, okay, what can we do here? It's like, don't see it like a gridlock. See it like a guardrail that's going to, hey, well, let's get back on the road and keep moving, come on, forward. So for some of you right now, you've been gridlocked in a mistake and you've been feeling so guilty for a mistake or an error in your life. I'm telling you, your Heavenly Father loves you and He wants you sure. Maybe some refining needs to happen in that area, but He does not define you by where you're guilty. Your Father is committed to refining you. And the guilt trap will often cause us to see our mistakes as a setback. And I don't care this is super corny, but I'm gonna say it. God teaches us to see those not as a setback, but as a setup. And your mistakes and your errors and the parts where maybe you're tempted to be in gridlock, your heavenly Father wants to leverage, leverage those like He did with Paul, where Paul's like, he's like, I see Paul that you're super passionate. I don't want you to lose your passion. I want those passion, it's a setup. I'm gonna use you for something great. Let's refine it. Let's redirect your energy instead of murdering Christians to helping Christians, right? Great use of your resource. In the same way, your Heavenly Father doesn't want to squash your enthusiasm, your identity, your sense of humour, your uniqueness, but He is committed to refining it. So every time you encounter a mistake, every time you encounter guilt and you hit that, you know, the guardrail of guilt, don't see it as a setback. See it as a setup. and go, God, what can you do through me and in me in this moment? Remember this, Jesus answered the question about who He was when He was question, who are you really? And are you really? And shouldn't you? Where did he answer these questions? He was in the wilderness. He was alone. He was in a place of 
destitution, no support, no one around him. It was a dark place. But it was in those moments he was able to go, this is who I am because my heavenly Father says so. And for some of you, maybe you are confronted with your faults and your mistakes and you would even argue that you're in a wilderness season right now. Perhaps you've found yourself in a situation where your plans in life have fallen over or your hopes and aspirations haven't eventuated. You might feel like you're in the wilderness and you might see this as a huge setback. I believe that your heavenly Father is able to use these moments as a set up for your life where you can refine those parts of you that are not necessary for your progress and how He's able to use you for something extraordinary with you simply being yourself. So again, what would Jesus, what would Paul, what would the disciples tell you and I? I think they would tell us to be yourself. Maybe a little refined, but be yourself. And as we finish this series, I want you to remember this. Be yourself. You're awesome. If I had a Bill Murray meme, I'd show it. Where he goes, you're awesome. No one gets that. Okay. It's my sense of humor. I don't care if you don't laugh at it because I'm just being myself. So be yourself. Now, I tend to forget this, particularly when I encounter a mistake, my own mistakes and I feel guilty for something. If you're anything like me, you might forget this. Or at least we often forget that God intends to continually refine who we are. And every time I forget this, there is a prayer, and it's what I want to finish the series on. There's a prayer, an ancient prayer that is prayed that I think will help us. And it's a prayer prayed and written down by King David of Israel. He lived a thousand years before Christ. He understands this process because God met him as a shepherd of sheep. And he's like, I can use those raw ingredients, have a bath, and I'll disciple you. And at his coronation in First Chronicles, it says, God said to him, you will now shepherd, not sheep any longer, but you'll shepherd my people Israel. He had all the raw ingredients. God just like, and you can look at illustration after illustration where God does that. And he prays this prayer. This is in Psalm 139. He said to God, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And there's no doubt about this. God knows you perfectly. He knows you. You can't wear a mask. You can't fake it. You can't perform to impress God. He knows you perfectly. He searched you. He knows you. He knows your thoughts. And He's acquainted with all your ways. Now that shouldn't freak you out to be like, oh boy. If anything, that should give you incredible comfort. It shows just how much you're loved. He doesn't love the perfect version of you. He doesn't love the refined version of you. He doesn't love the sorted out version of you, the clean version of you, the neat version of you. He doesn't love the version of you where you got to put on makeup or dress right when you go on a date to impress someone. He loves you as you are. This should be incredibly comforting to know that maybe the world tries to fit you in a form, but your heavenly Father has already fearfully and wonderfully made you just as He deemed fit. Now, He prays this at the beginning of the psalm. And in the last verses of this psalm, it's like He repeats Himself, but He prays it again. And He says this. He then prays it again. Firstly, He said, you have searched me. Then He prays it again. He goes, now search me. Do it again. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive 
way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice this progression. He says, know my heart, know my thoughts, and then see if there's any wicked ways in me, my actions. Now, here's, here's the trick about this, right? Guilt, the trap of guilt, it'll often cause us to just look at the ways, just our actions. I need to change my actions. I need to change how I behave. And if you're someone that's new to faith, exploring it, that's often how we view faith is that it's like, I've got to act differently. And if I act right, then I'm all right. And a wrong understanding of your heavenly father will teach you that, that to be all right, I've got to act right. But there's only one person's actions that could ever make you and I all right. And they were the actions that were displayed 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ when he willingly sacrificed his life on the cross in the place of our sin and our guilt and our wrongdoing. No matter how much you and I will try to act right, it will never make us all right. But Jesus' action on the cross is enough to already make you and I all right. And on the cross, Jesus bore your guilt. And on the cross, Jesus made you all right in the eyes of your heavenly Father. And on the cross, Jesus pronounced you and I innocent. And so we're, instead of first going to what actions do I have to do, what actions do I have to change? David gives us this progression. And he starts off by saying heart. And in just a moment, our team's going to lead us in a song as we close out this series. And we're going to have an opportunity to explore what this means to get our heart right. But ultimately, this is where the issue of guilt truly lies. It's a heart matter. It's usually something in me that needs to be refined. Often there's a wrong belief about myself or about God. But you have to understand it's our heart more than our actions and even more than our thoughts that God is primarily concerned with. And if we think God simply wants us to fit a mold and act right and act a certain way and that's all he cares about, you've misunderstood it. David understood this by saying, Lord, would you first search my heart? And whenever you encounter the guardrails of guilt, I want you to first ask the question, God, is it not something I just need to perform my way out of? Is there something internally, something about what's happening in me that needs to change? Is there something in me that you want to heal? Is there something in me that you need to affirm? Is there something in me that you need to remind me of that I have forgotten? And then he progresses to thinking. He After he said, would you search my heart? He goes, see if there's any anxious thoughts. And often, this, and we've talked about this earlier, this is where guilt can sometimes knock on, right? It's like we think incorrectly. That's where we compare ourselves to the Joneses and poor Jones family, they always get copped out there. But like, but you know, maybe you think, oh, I'm not as good as a mum as them, not as good as a husband as them. And, and we think wrong. And so sometimes that's why David's saying, okay, if it's not my heart thing, maybe it's a thinking thing. God, if there's any anxious thoughts, would you help me there? And then he went to, after heart, after thinking, then he went to our ways. And at times there is those moments where we've gone through my heart, gone through my thoughts, go, you know what? This God, rather than just encounter, maybe this is something, a behavior, an action in my life that I need to surrender to Jesus and allow Him to walk me through and refine in my life. Behavior will follow when you get your heart cleared, your thinking right, behavior will follow, but it should never lead. Jesus is the action that should always lead in our life. So what I wanna do this morning, I've asked the team to lead us in a song. And in just a moment, I'm gonna ask you all to stand. And maybe there's an area in your life where you feel you've found gridlock, 
you've gotten stuck, where guilt has got its claws into you and forgot, and it's caused you to forget who you are in your Heavenly Father's eyes. This morning is a chance for us to bring that to God, to have a moment. If you're someone who's new to church and never experienced something like this, you're more than welcome to sing along, to read the lyrics. But in this moment, you might have an opportunity, this is what I've prayed for, that you might personally, for the first time, realize that God is real and that God is for you and that He loves you. So can we stand together? And our guys are going to lead us.
I even feel this morning some of you are acutely aware of in this moment of perhaps words that have been spoken over your life that have guilted you into an identity, perhaps from an authority figure in your life or someone who's been close to you and that word has just reverberated and reverberated. Today, your Heavenly Father wants to know that you are loved. You can be yourself. You don't have to fit anyone else's mold or form that they've placed for you. I thank you for lifting off all those words and all those harm. Thank you for your kindness to minister and move in the lives of people today, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.